Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, where a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before us, you heard Sally with Out of the Pan. Check that out 12 till 1 every Sunday for all things uh, affecting the rainbow community and rainbow issues. Um, Always worth checking out Sally's show. I'm Nick Pendergrass hosting today, and I'm joined by Megan Street, who is a host of Green Left Radio on 3CR and is also a regular guest on this show. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Megan. It's lovely to be here, Nick. Thank you. No worries. And I want to start off with, um, I guess, yeah, introducing you to our listeners who haven't heard you. I mean, have been on the show for a little while. Um, but yeah, I think you're a good person to address this topic. We're looking at um, connections between workers' rights and animal rights. And I think they're often spoken about as though they're sort of two opposite things. But yeah, lots of us care about both those issues. And you're someone who, who campaigns a lot around the human social justice issues and environmental social justice issues and also is concerned about animals as well. Um, I wanted to maybe to start things off. I believe you've taken a bit of a break from the show um, and getting involved in some local Local politics. You want to talk about how that went first? So I actually became a a local council candidate uh, for Moreland City Council. I ran on the Sue Bolton Moreland team. Uh, Sue is a current councillor and um, very, very progressive, uh, you know, human rights advocate, uh, refugees, environmentalist, etc. and socialist like myself. Um, so one of the things about local council is that it, people often think, well, there's not really much that we can do at the local council level, but there's actually a massive amount we can do, both environmentally, human rights-wise, even animal rights-wise. We can do a lot of things at the local council level because local council actually controls a lot of things uh, to do with the running of, um, of our local community. And in fact, like local council uh, probably owns over upwards of $100 billion uh, worth of assets in Victoria here alone. So you can imagine that if they own $100 billion worth of assets, they're also managing lots and lots of services to do with those assets. So those sorts of reasons are one of the reasons why local council is a good way to get into politics and to make a difference at the local level. And um, you know, I, I ran on a, a socialist ticket, a progressive socialist ticket, but I was obviously not, um, I was in no way being secretive about the fact that I was a vegan. And I did mention that in a lot of um, a lot of my campaigns, et cetera, um, because I think it's actually really important for people who are putting themselves out there and becoming prominent to actually say that they're vegans and animal rights advocates. I think it normalises the whole thing and it actually brings people uh, into thinking about these topics so obviously animal rights, human rights, the environment, and um, obviously being a socialist, um, you know, economic justice as well. 
are all things that are really important to me. So yeah, that's basically, um, I didn't get in, unfortunately, but our incumbent did get re-elected, even though it was neck and neck between her and a Trump-loving um, candidate. And we are very, very fortunate to have her instead of the uh, Trump-loving right-wing uh, candidate. <laughs> yeah, and, and how, how did it go uh, raising the vegan issue? Because I guess um, some might think that the, the socialism might be a sort of hard enough sell in itself and then you chuck veganism in there too. Like, how, how did you found, find that was received when you, I guess, uh, came out as a vegan? <laughs> it is interesting because you have... Across the moorland community, you have various different um, communities, basically. So you've got your north and south divide, which is often, um, you know, just for, so south of Sydney Road, north of Sydney Road, different socioeconomic, um, you know, backgrounds, etc. When you're talking to people, say, south of the divide, there are a lot of vegans and vegetarians anyway. And a lot of people keyed into the issue, uh, especially with the link uh, to uh getting rid of animal products from your diet and the link between environment, you know, decreasing your environmental impact. Uh, other um, communities, the, the link is not so obvious. And it was, um, it was met with a little bit of curiosity, but I did put myself forward as a progressive candidate. And obviously in doing so, I was going to have issues and challenges, especially in certain segments of the community. But one of the best things to do is to listen to people and to come at, to make sure that they know who you are, but also to listen to their issues as well and then discuss it with them. Um, I found that a lot of people were quite open to it. And Moreland Council itself actually uh, does like the whole idea of Meatless Monday, although one councillor is particularly against it. We won't name names, but... Um, they do, uh, they're looking into having things like uh, meatless, actually uh, catering meat, meatless uh, for all of their events, etc. Um, and they do acknowledge, they have acknowledged that there's a climate emergency. And obviously in, in doing so, they have to acknowledge that there's a link between animal consumption and our impact on the planet. And uh, I would definitely have pushed that as a, as a politician, as a councillor. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think there's a um, yeah a real need to bring in um, that issue, that animal issue, animal agriculture to discussions around climate change. But I do definitely feel like there is a positive movement in that direction that is starting to be addressed. And as much mm-hmm. as um, you know, I, I guess the the steps like from my perspective as an animal liberationist are kind of like not far enough in terms of considering the individual animals even steps like meatless mondays and these kind of steps which i don't think are enough individual animals but i still think there is i do think there are positive steps that at least the issue has been discussed as well like that is an environmental issue even if i might have different solutions but do you feel like there's been positive movements in that direction recently Absolutely. Look, it's all about normalisation. So, you know, 20, 25 years ago, we were on the fringe with our ideas and our ethics. But I would say now that because we have constantly discussed this and because we've got thin end of the wedge uh, issues such as Meatless Mondays and people are really becoming aware of the link between diet and environment, this whole normalisation of issues, um, you know, and and the whole normalisation of a vegan lifestyle, especially in particular you know, in in the aspect of it relating to the environment. But also when you normalise a vegan lifestyle, not just a diet, a vegan lifestyle um, from other avenues, it really sort of brings people into considering that, well, okay, if we're not eating animals and we're not using animals, you know, should we consider them sentient beings and beings existing in their own right? 
it's this thin end of the wedge. And when we constantly talk about it and when we constantly bring up these issues, we push what I call the Overton window more towards the idea that animals are sentient creatures and have rights on their own. And so even though Meatless Mondays, I mean, it's so far to, you know, to sort of the, the other side of what we want, it's still, it's still a seed that's planted. And when we talk, we water that seed and we grow that garden. And that's a really, really crucial way to normalising the ethics of veganism. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think we often kind of think that people eat animals because they are speciesists or discriminate or devalue other animals. But I think it often goes the other way as well in that people are speciesists because they eat animals. So because they've got animals on the plate, then they try and justify it. So yeah, as much as those things like the environmental steps and even health steps has been, you know, a bunch of documentaries recently, the game changes, etc. And even though they're not from an animal rights message, I do think that people getting animals out of their diets, even just for a meal, or one day a week or whatever could be a good starting point to actually maybe start thinking more clearly about animals once they're off their plate. I think that is a really, really important, even almost regardless of the reason for that. I know it was definitely for me. I definitely Mm. started thinking about animals in their own right um, Mm. after I actually went into a vegan diet. Um, Mm. I had already sort of had that emotional reaction of, well, you know, hey, they're kind of cute and fuzzy. Maybe we shouldn't eat them. But really delving into the philosophical ramifications of eating animals and using their bodies, it really became an alien concept once you actually didn't do it. And so I think it's actually a process for people when they actually realise that this is not the norm, when it becomes not the norm. I mean, if you have a look at, say, Christmas is coming up. Um, If you have a look at the average child now, so the average child that goes to a Christmas dinner now um, we'll probably have some uncle or aunt or, uh, you know, or maybe it's their one of their parents, et cetera, that doesn't eat meat, that might be a vegan. There'll be possibly a vegan roast on the table. It's all about normalisation. And as that kid grows up, they see that as a normal thing and something that they can aspire to. It is all about normalisation because we have a system that really stops us from thinking about all the exploitation that we do when we consume. And it's a massive amount of exploitation and the animals are exploited in so many ways through our consumption of products. And it's not just the consumption of non-vegan products, it's also the consumption of vegan products as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's really important that even though that that like hypothetical child you talked about might not go vegan in that moment, um, the fact that down the track, if they maybe watch a documentary or read an article or what, whatever they, they get into in animal rights, they're like, oh, I did see that I, I once tried that vegan roast and it was it fine and they know those products are out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's yeah. really important. So yeah, we're going to get on to an article from The Guardian all about uh, workers' rights and animal rights and the connections between the two before we get into that we're going to um go into a song and have a bunch of workers right songs today considering we're discussing that issue today so this is uh saturday like like saturday but saturday by dollar sign it's all about having to work on a saturday
to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. I'm joined by Megan Street and we're talking about workers' rights and animal rights today. And we're going to do that by uh, drawing on and sort of building and and building off this article from The Guardian. So this is COVID-19 shows factory food production is dangerous for animals and humans alike. Um, It's by Troy Vertice and Alex Blanchett. Um, So from the 8th of of September 2020, so a few months ago on theguardian.com, Uh, But it's very sort of relevant ongoing issues, particularly, yeah, in the current pandemic, but also ongoing issues around uh, workers' rights and animal rights. So... I'm going to read bits of it and also build on it. So just to read some opening bits, um, to anyone who has breathed country air thick with aerosoled manure or learn how the global expansion of pasture for feed crops drives deforestation, it might seem obvious that capitalism is unable to sustainably manage animal life, yet the meat industry struggles to handle human life too. So that's going to look into this this negative impact that you know, slaughterhouses obviously have on other animals, but also the workers in the equation too um and yeah I, I guess i want to just get your perspective just building on that that just that opening sentence and, and just talk a bit about um i guess your involvement in progressive movements and and, and as a vegan as well about I, like i think there'd be a lot of people on the left who would be concerned about workers rights including slaughterhouse workers rights yes. and then yeah. there's a lot of animal rights activists concerned about the animals but yeah i, I think they often don't necessarily go together that much often animal rights might not talk much about the workers rights and yeah the uh people on the left might talk about this as a like a workers rights issue but not also mm-hmm. neglect there's also animal rights issues going on so yeah how have you kind of seen this issue sort of played out or discussed within uh progressive and leftist movements yeah so as a vegan socialist i do straddle that divide and i do see that there is definitely different angles from where um, people come from. So just to um, just give people some some background, um, workers in slaughterhouses are some of the most exploited workers in pretty much any any industry uh, in the world. They are absolutely, they have terrible conditions. Um, They are worked to the bone. I mean, in this article that we're talking about, they're talking about um, the fact that some workers wear nappies because they don't get enough, uh, you know, toilet breaks, et cetera. That's the kind of thing that we have. We have a background where a lot of these people are migrant workers. Uh, a lot of them have a, a background of, you know, some of them might be illegal migrants or, um, you know, they, they might not be able to uh, work legally in whatever country they're working in, etc. So, it, it, look, the slaughterhouse is a horror house for everyone. It's not just for the animals. Obviously, the animals lose their bodies, but essentially uh, workers lose their right to be human, basically. Mm. And I think we've touched on this in, uh, in previous conversations we've had on the show, but I see the whole philosophy of capitalism is humans and non-human animals alike are just units of production of profit or alternatively, they're units of hindrance to production of profit. So you're either a little widget that's making a profit in the machine of capitalism or you're a little spanner in the works of profit of the machine of capitalism. 
So say take, for example, um, you know, a worker uh, in, in the slaughterhouse is a production of a unit of production of profit. And so is the animal that's giving their life, um, you know, to, to, for someone to eat it. Um, say a unit of hindrance to produc production of profit might be, say, an orangutan uh, in a forest that's fighting to uh, stay in the tree that the, you know, the workers are trying to chop down for a palm plantation, etc. So in the same way, it could be an environmentalist who's up a tree, saving that tree, or they're a unit of hindrance to profit. And that's all that capitalism sees us as. So when people come from, say, in the left, when they come from the, um, the angle of workers' rights, they really are mired in this whole idea that workers' rights and animal rights are very separate things. And on the other hand, the vegan also comes from the idea that the animals' rights uh, in that sort of house are the primary thing that is, you know, that the, the of primary importance. But really, workers and animals, their rights are being trampled on left, right, and centre when we look at. Uh, slaughterhouses, when we look at, um, you know, meat production uh, facilities, meat processing facilities, which are usually one and the same in these days because uh, uh, the, the big boys are basically crowding out everyone. So it, there, there's a lot of tension in that one side sees that the other side prioritises um, one aspect of exploitation over another. Um, whereas, say, being a vegan socialist, I understand that both of these forms of exploitations are, are absolutely unacceptable. It's totally unacceptable to exploit someone to the point where they don't even get time to go and urinate or defecate. It is totally unacceptable to exploit an animal to the point where they lose their lives so that someone's taste buds can be satisfied on a plate later on. Um, it's a difficult situation to be in, but it's actually quite an exciting situation. Like it's an exciting way to be. Because to be honest, if we have a look at the direction of the world and the direction of progressive politics and progressive ethics, we see that these kinds of things, are, they're both on the cusp of where we need to be. They're both on the cusp of where we're going in the future. So even though, I mean, obviously I cop flack from either side because I'm seen as prioritising one thing over the other when I'm, I'm not really, um, it, it's... It's quite a, a brave way to be, um, to, to say that human and animal lives both deserve the right for respect and don't deserve to be exploited. It seems to be such a simple thing, but in the end, it's quite controversial because it is, we live in a sort of a black and white society. We have this whole situation where you've got to pick one side. You've got to, you've got to have one over the other. Whereas we should be fighting for both. And I think this article really shows that capitalism and this, this whole horrible meat production system is awful for both human and non-human animals. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, there's different ways we go with it. And I think, yeah, we could go after sort of the, the veganism, vegans not seeing the bigger picture and also like speciesism and, and sort of a neglect of animals on the left. But as you say, there are an increasing number of people making the connection of, of caring about both those things, which is good to see. But I, I might go after the vegans first, but I think the um, uh, vegan, obviously. But um, yeah, I think that the like, I think sometimes the way the sort of the framing of uh, vegans is that society is totally fine, except this one issue, yes. this, this one 
one issue we we harm animals and if we just stop doing that um like everything would be fine there'd be no injustice there'd be no um or they're just there's not focus on that even if that didn't happen as much as that would be really good for all the individual suffering and and that kind of thing it would be really significant in itself if we did stop exploiting animals but there would still be lots of ongoing uh issues of inequality under uh capitalism with uh as you say the exploitation of workers um ongoing racism sexism there's so many issues affecting human environmental issues etc which are partly a result of animal agriculture but also you know caused by you know transport and fossil fuels and other things which aren't related to animals as well so um yeah maybe we'll go down that road first i I guess yeah like i guess your response for people like maybe vegans who who haven't yet like sort of seen those connections and uh i I guess might be overall sort of liberal attitudes but might not necessarily see many fundamental problems with society as it is or capitalism as it is beyond animals being exploited yeah so just to give um some background on my kind of ethical evolution uh, i was a long-term vegan before i became a socialist and so obviously for me i am actually coming from the vegan perspective and i'm coming from a perspective initially that was very, very class unaware. So for me, the, the issue of class, so basically um, people's access to uh, opportunities, people's access to uh, financial stability, people's access to education, health, uh, where they live, you know, what what's around them, etc. That wasn't something that I really gave very much uh, thought to. So I was a member of um, the political party, the Greens. And uh, so the Greens have um, this uh, stereotype thrown at them. And, and I guess it has some kind of, you know, it has some basis, and, although I'm very, I don't think stereotypes are great at all. But they have this whole inner suburban latte sipping stereotype. And when I actually really started to look into the idea of class-based issues, I really actually understood where people were coming from. So I did a lot of door knocking um, for, I was also a member of the Victorian Socialists. And when we did door knocking, we did typically door knocking in areas that were not touched by either Labor or the Greens, basically because it was a Labor um, stronghold and they didn't care about them because they were going to vote for them anyway. And the Greens, it was just too working class for them. They knew that we weren't going to get any votes. When I actually talked to them about why, you know, you know, what was the issue with them with progressive um, politics and everything? It wasn't actually that they had an issue with progressive politics. It was actually that they had an issue about people ignoring the very real struggles that they had. So if, I would, if you want to put it really, really simply, um, you can't talk about philosophy. You can't talk about nuanced ethical uh, issues if you don't have a roof over your head or if you're dodging bullets or if you haven't had enough to eat. These sorts of things are not, um, they're not, if you have a look at Maslow's um, hierarchy, so basically the very um, the very absolute essentials that you need are things like um, air and water and food and then shelter uh, and then good company and so and so and so forth. So right up the very top are the things that you don't actually necessarily need, but obviously need for a more progressive society. So talking about philosophy and the ethics of what we do, but you can't do that if you can't even get the basics. And that's the whole problem. Um, you know, it, you can't tell someone, you can't tell a single mum who works two jobs, um, who fights for every dollar that she has, who wonders whether next week she's going to be uh, homeless, 
to go out and buy, you know, fresh organic produce, um, vegan processed foods, etc., and everything will be fine. You can't do that because it's really not showing, it's showing it very much an unawareness of class-based issues. Mm. And so once I actually understood that people come from different levels of opportunity and different levels of um, privilege, if, if, you want to, if you want to put it that way, um, I realised that we actually need to take a more nuanced and importantly, a more compassionate way of talking to people about the things that we find important. I find it important um, animal issues are heard. I find it important that we state that the using of animals in any way, in shape or form, their bodies, their you know production of excretions, etc. It's not it's not something that I agree with and it's not something a lot of people agree with. But I can't sit there and talk about that to someone who is homeless. I think that they probably are prioritising certain issues, i.e. the getting of a, a home first. And so when, when we talk about these issues, they're always in a matrix of opportunity and privilege and where people are at. And so we always have to take a compassionate angle, whether that be, you know, a, a progressive left angle or whether that be a vegan angle, we must understand that people are at different stages of their lives and they have different levels of opportunities and they may never, ever have the level of opportunity that we have in our lives. And we have to see that as a reality. Um, it really, like, that was just such an important revelation for me uh, as a vegan to understand class issues. It really opened my eyes and really made me understand that my issue, my single issue was not the only issue in the world and that I had to progress with forwarding my issue in a very compassionate and understanding way, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that like I, speaking of privilege, like I am privileged in, in so many ways, but that there have been and certain so times. And so yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, the, but there have been certain times in my life where I have had that economic hardship and that doesn't mean that I've uh, become a reactionary or started supporting Donald Trump or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but during that time, I did find it really hard to engage with the social justice issues going on, not because I all of a sudden didn't care about those issues, but it was actually really hard to think about that when you're sort of counting down the days until like money comes into your account and you, you're worried about buying groceries and all that kind of thing as well. So yeah, I think that is a, yeah, definitely an issue for uh, the Greens and just more generally on within progressive movements of rather than sort of um, riding off people who, who maybe aren't uh, thinking about these issues in some cases as much as others, others looking to that um, that class issue. And I think like this article is kind of written in the context of, of like um, socialists and I think like socialists and others, like I personally identify more in like an anarchist kind of way, but I see a lot of um, crossover and, and a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of parallels uh, with the points of this article and with um, socialists in general. Uh, but I guess more generally, like those bringing in class to these issues, it's not so much like a way of taking, because I think there's this big discussion the left of like identity politics like do we focus on sexism racism and these things which tend to be lumped into often quite derogatory derogatorily if that's a word but as identity politics kind of dismissed yeah. um and then there's the idea of like um like class like in just focus on class ignoring these issues but i guess the way i understand it for um socialists and other bringing class it's not so much saying let's ignore sexism racism species and, and just focus on class it's more about bringing in that class as an additional 
internal thing that's often neglected. Um, but yeah, do you have any thoughts on that idea of like there's, I, I feel like there's this debate at the moment of like identity politics is, is the term that's thrown around versus class reductionism. But yeah, I guess it's more about, it's not about either of those things. It's about all of all of these things being important. But you, uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that whole debate discussion. I, I do actually. Um, identity politics is actually used as a bit of a slur. Um, so it really is um, the idea that um, identity politics is is used to basically say, well, you know, this whole idea of, you know, who you are, you know, in talking about racism and sexism and all those sorts of things, that draws away from the idea of, well, actually, there's only sort of two classes. There's there's us and then there's the capitalists, basically. But it's really, for me, it's, it's looking through... Um, the prism of understanding in so many different ways. So when we approach different issues, it's not that we should approach it from, um, you know, a an identity issues way, or we should approach it from a class-based sort of analysis. Um, it's that we should take all of these things into account, combine them, and use it as a prism to view whatever situation that we're viewing. It's basically collecting different gems of knowledge and then looking through those gems to see the world. Because I think we see a lot more when we can actually understand all of the issues. And these issues are often like, there's this whole false dichotomy of it's either this one or that one. And it's actually usually a mixture of a whole different bunch of issues that is really in play in particular situations. So again, with the whole idea that these, these sort of warring factions that basically say my issue is most important, I think what we need to do is weave this kind of story that all of these issues are important and should be looked at when we look at individual issues. And I think actually, if you have a look at, um, say, what I just said before about, um, you know, talking about veganism, you know, I've been a vegan for almost 25 years. I've only been a socialist, great, you know, the, the last five years, but looking through that prism of class analysis as well as a lot of identity politics, which I also find important and I have found important for many years. But adding that to my vegan prism and looking at the world, it becomes so much clearer to me the reason behind problems that we have and often the solutions to the problems that we have. Mm. So this whole idea of separatism is very kind of foreign to me. I want to use all of these things to actually build my world knowledge and build the way I look at the world and try to use that in my activism. So I think actually rather than um, being at odds with each other, they're actually, they have a synergistic um, effect. They actually increase the efficacy, the, the, the way that we view the world. They increase that, um, I, I don't really know how to say it, but if you look through a looking glass, if you look through a binoculars, you're looking at something a lot closer up and you can see a lot more information and a lot more detail. And that's how I see all of these things. Yeah, and I think that um, that Marxist class analysis, which I personally support, and I think we can sort of support that class analysis and go, like, I'm a white-collar worker, I'm an academic, but that doesn't mean, like, I'm I'm a sessional, I have, like, insecure work, and yes. so do many blue-collar workers and pink-collar workers, et cetera. So even though I might have different experiences and, and yeah, different, different occupation, we've all got that shared issues as workers. I think we can have that analysis but also acknowledge that – 
there are certain issues that uh, other workers face that I might not face, like women in the workplace, immigrants, et cetera, all these people. So I think we can sort of have that overall analysis, but also allow for the complexities that there are some issues that some workers are facing, but others aren't, I guess, as well. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it just it just enriches our world vision, our worldview, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and getting getting back to the article again, this is from theguardian.com um, and linking it to the pandemic. So um, they mentioned that for a brief period, it seemed as though COVID-19 signaled the meat industry's undoing. Um, so meat sales dropped by 3% in 2020, the largest decline in decades. Um, and also there's been a lot of, um, and Megan touched on this bit at the start, the conditions in there, it's very crowded, it's very hard to socially distance, etc. Um, so unfortunately, Unfortunately, at, at this point, and this was published in early September, um, 41,935 meat workers had, had become sick, and that's in the United States alone. We've had mm. uh, deaths here in Victoria as well. So, yeah, uh, I think that that's sort of been, not to say that things were all fine in slaughterhouses for animals or workers pre-COVID, but it has been one of the industries that's really, um, yeah, been particularly affected for, for those kind of reasons. Um, and I think that, yeah, I guess from a more hopeful point of view as well, I think during these times, again, as we touched on earlier, even if it is just you know meat being off people's plate because of shortages or because of these sort of production level things that are going on, that could possibly be a step towards um, thinking about eating without you know, consuming yeah. animals. Um, also, a lot of people during this pandemic have had extra time and are baking and, and cooking and, and that kind of thing. I know that very much depends on the individual. Some people haven't felt that way at all. I don't yeah. think I have, <laughs> particularly have myself. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't want to assume everyone's just sitting around looking for things to do. But uh, certainly some people have been. So that could possibly be a barrier of like it is a bit of a change in behaviour and that kind of thing uh, as well. So mm-hmm. do, you have, do you have any thoughts on that about the sort of the opportunities uh, of thinking towards veganism during this time? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when when we were looking at so across the world, this phenomena of um, COVID just ripping through um, slaughterhouses and meat processing facilities was something that was on the lips of a lot of people, especially people around me. And I was really honing in on that. I was saying, why is it that slaughterhouses across North America, in Canada, in you know, in uh, in uh, the United States? in Germany, in Italy, here in Australia, across the world, um, meat packing and slaughtering facilities were absolute hotbeds of COVID infection. And and people were like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's because they're cool. They're actually very cold um, places to work. And then it got me thinking and I went, that's actually not true because there are a lot of cold chain production facilities that don't include the slaughter of meat. And these, these places have not been the hotbed of COVID infection that slaughterhouses were. And when I just started to have discussions about this with people, you could really see a light went on in their eyes. And it just, again, brings another negative connotation to meat consumption. So it's really like for a lot of people, and for some people, this will be the straw that breaks a donkey's back, to use a terrible phrase. <laughs> it's not very good for this show, but um, it's just another thing that makes people realise, hmm, a slaughterhouse, slaughterhouses across the world, they are reservoirs of COVID infection. Why is this? And it's to do with partially the exploitation of the workers, but it's also to do with the handling and processing of meat products. And so that kind of thing really starts people getting that, that gets the conversation going and you can see people's cogs quietly turning. 
Um, you know, many, many years back, uh, there was the mad cow um, uh, disease, you know, Kruzfeld-Jakob, which basically if you ate meat, if you ate beef, you could possibly get Kruzfeld-Jakob, which is, um, you know, the human version of mad cow disease. Now, back then, people really started, the cog started turning with people. And a lot of people actually went vegetarian as a consequence. And not just giving up beef, they actually gave up all meats. So you can see that kind of thing happening as well. And then, of course, there was the whole idea of the shortage of meat. And so there were, there were shortages of meat across the world. It was harder to get. And so that really keys into the idea that meat is a luxury. If you can't get it, if there is such a, a um, problem with production in a time of a pandemic, then maybe this is something that we shouldn't be eating or maybe this is something that is a luxury for some people, i.e. it's a luxury for privileged people. So this is kind of just, it's, it's a nail in the coffin. We just keep being hammered with these negative, negative things. And it, despite the billions of dollars spent um, from these massive PR machines, you know, like Tyson Foods, who has, you know, huge amounts of, um, you know, chickens and slaughterhouses across the United States and all of these mega corporations that rely on the exploitation of animals, despite the billions and billions of dollars they pump into PR campaigns, people are still seeing through it. And each time this happens, you know, each time something negative comes out of um, this such a, a global pandemic in regards to meat, every single time you will see those seeds planted and you will see these people and their cogs turning and maybe they won't turn vegetarian or vegan. You know, maybe that won't be today. Maybe it won't be tomorrow. But it's that normalisation and we are getting there step by step. And so, yeah, th this is definitely something that has been, a, you know, it, it's it's been... To put a positive spin on an awful thing, it has made people think about the origin of their meat, about the health ramifications of meat, not just for, you know, for themselves, but for the workers who work in these processing plants uh, and whether, you know, it's something that we want to continue in the future. Yeah, we, we, we'll continue to discuss this article on workers' rights animals after the break and we'll talk particularly about, um, yeah, actually workers themselves advocating for a boycott on meat, which I thought was a really interesting example. So we'll get to that after this song. We're going to play a song which I think was quite relevant talking about those intersections of, of work and class and other social justice issues. So this was looks at like work and gender. So this is Kate Bush with This Woman's Work. Pray God you can call
want to add in in the middle of the show here a foster call out from the group Gumtree Greys who rescue greyhounds from the greyhound racing industry. So currently there are 30 greyhounds in Melbourne who are looking for foster carers um, but the rescue group currently is out of foster carers at the moment so they're really looking for people to sign up to take on these greyhounds, um, fostering short short term, looking after them, giving them home uh, even in the short term um, and yeah it can be a wide range of people so it can be people living in apartments or um, yeah residential home can be part-time casual full-time workers single people or retirees um, families with children even if you've got other animals and small dogs Um, so yeah wide range of people can apply Um, it can be as short as a few weeks or even as long as a few months and I was thinking right now would be a good time for some people who are working from home to adopt or or, uh, foster in this case a dog Uh, particularly people who usually maybe don't think they have the time to look after a dog because they are working all day and are out of the house Uh, but for those who are will be home for the next you know month or or couple of months um, it might be a really good time to uh, foster one of these greyhounds Um, so yeah I think that's um, about it Um, they mentioned it's a rewarding experience um, giving them a home and you find more information I'll post this on our social media freedom of species social media Uh, but if you are interested go to gumtreegraze.com.au that is gumtreegraze.com.au. I'll also put links in the show note this um, for this show as well. And I did also want to mention just uh, separate to this release as well. I think that there have been some like efforts from um, greyhound racing industry to sort of rehome certain dogs to. Um, like a number of dogs to try and reform the the image of the greyhound racing industry. I did want to mention as well from a freedom of species perspective, we are totally against the greyhound industry and we want to see that uh, shut down. We want to be very clear about that. Um, But having said that, we definitely support uh, doing what we can to look after the individuals who who suffer under that industry as well. So yeah, if you can help out, again, gumtreegreys.com.au, you can foster a greyhound. Music has been at the heart of the city of Darabin's rich cultural history. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms is an audio tour that covers the history of country, rock, punk, cabaret, rabbinica, folk and traditional music styles in the Darabin area. Experienced as a walking tour via the Echoes app or listened to at home via the web, the tour brings listeners to 15 locations to reveal the songs and stories behind the city's venues, past and present. 
Visit BeatsBalladsAndBallrooms.com for more information. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms was commissioned and funded by Darabin Arts, a hyperlocal. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. We're joined by Megan Street and we're talking about um, animals and workers and, and the connections between the two. And we're discussing an article from The Guardian um, by Troy Vitesse and Alex Blanchett. Sorry about the pronunciation if the authors happen to be listening in. Um, but, yeah, I want to start off uh, um, talking about this um, really interesting example of um, yeah, workers themselves advocating for um, a meatless May and actually advocating that individuals don't consume meat, which was kind of really interesting because that's what I guess veganism is, right? It's a boycott, or not just of meat, but of, of any form of animal exploitation. Uh, and the authors argued the only people in the meat industry who have shown leadership during the COVID-19 crisis have been the workers themselves. At the, at the outbreak's peak, immigrant and refugee packing employees in Iowa called on consumers to boycott the fruit of their labor a meatless may if line speeds and density were not reduced and i think this sort of reminds me a little bit of our opening discussions around the environment like as much as this isn't a fundamental critique it's not saying this industry shouldn't exist i I do think it's a really interesting opportunity of seeing that connection there and seeing actually similar messaging coming from vegan advocates and from workers themselves and so yeah i think it's really interesting example and also i thought you might be interested in commenting this as a socialist as well this is sort of the the production and the consumption coming together and those who are more at the production end um, sort of having a say of this rather than just those of us more at the consumption end trying to reduce that demand. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on this example of this um, consumer boycott advocated by slaughterhouse workers themselves? Yeah, so at the heart of socialism is the power of the workers and we really acknowledge that only the workers have the interest of the workers in mind. The capitalist class do not have the interest of the workers in mind. As I said previously, the workers are simply units of production. I mean, if we can, you know, if we can downgrade their um, conditions and pay and, you know, uh, if we can get them to work faster, if we can get to to do all of these sorts of things, basically the capitalists are making more profit out of them. And so the workers are the only people who are advocating truly for their own rights. And so this was a fantastic thing that they did. Um, So, yeah, the whole meatless main thing, basically boycott the fruits of their own labour. Because from, say, the 1970s onwards, production lines in slaughterhouses have dramatically increased. Line speeds are to the point where, uh, you know, they they are not getting even time to turn around and cover their cough, um, you know, in in the production line, which is obviously devastating for COVID infection. And as I mentioned before, you know, people aren't even getting adequate toilet breaks because line speeds are so fast. And, you know, these people have to work so hard that they know how bad the conditions in these places are. And so, you know, if they're actually basically getting to the point of desperation where they're saying, please boycott what we are producing because our lives, our very lives are in danger because of the conditions that we're in. So, you know, if you're talking about pre-COVID, you're talking line speeds, you're talking, there's a high amount of... um, Uh, of accidents that occur in in slaughterhouses. A lot of injuries occur from repetitive motion, from, you know, um, accidental cutting and bandsaws, et cetera. Um, These people know how dangerous it is. But in the time of COVID, not only did they have to worry about those things were already endemic as issues in the industry, 
they also had to worry about a disease that could go through their numbers so quickly. And a lot of these people were, um, again, a lot of them are migrants. A lot of them, it's, it's a very low paid job. A lot of people don't want to do this, but they want to eat the fruit of the production. So you've got these people who, um, you know, in some countries, say, say America, they don't have health insurance that comes with this job. So this, this COVID can rip through these um, populations of meat workers and it can devastate them. I mean, you know, as of um, this of writing of this article a couple of months ago, 200 meat workers were dead. It's definitely way, way beyond that now. And that was just in America alone. Their, their lives, their very lives were at stake. So they organised and in organising, they, they took back some of their power. But um, just in that same article, it actually says that there's this whole idea of, you know, deep-seated racism in contemporary US. And this is what we were talking about before about identity politics as well. And looking at the, you know, through the prism of race, because a lot of these workers were migrant workers and they were brown skin, you know, sometimes from Mexico or other places, they weren't seen as being very important in the US. And so their appeal for their lives over cheap meat was unfortunately not successful. But it, it just obviously in the article, it makes clear that the fate of the working class and domestic animals is inextricably bound together. And so, you know, these sorts of things are a way that we see the connection between the workers in the slaughterhouse and the animals that they are slaughtering. Both are exploited. Both have put their lives on the line and both are seen as expendable as well. Mm. So it, it's such an important thing for workers to self-organise and to gain that power back because workers are the ones that generate the wealth. Workers are really the ones that actually build the wealth of a community, that build the wealth of a society. So even as you said, look, this is just a tiny, tiny thing, but it's a thin end of the wedge. It's, it's something that makes people think. And here we are at the end of the line saying, hey, this is, this is where we should be. Another world is possible. You don't even have to eat meat. You don't even have to utilise animals and exploit them. When people do this and self-organise and show that there are so many issues with meat production and meat consumption, we offer them this whole end of the spectrum, this whole kind of another world is possible and as Arundhati Roy says, another world is possible and on a quiet day I can hear her breathing. It's such a nice thing to say because I can hear that breathing of compassion, that slow inhalation and exhalation of a better world that's to come if we work towards it. And these workers are trying in their own way to work towards that better world. Mm. Yeah, and I think a good note to finish on, and, and this is probably quite a big question, so we'll see how we go. But uh, one thing I found interesting, they mentioned the author and socialist politician Upton Sinclair yes, Upton argued Sinclair. that in a socialist society, no worker would be willing to practice such a debasing and repulsive trade. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, particularly, uh, I think we mentioned before uh, recording, like I, I'm a sociologist and I've taught on the sociology of work and there, there's quite interesting discussions about, like, can you just from the outside say, like, that 
job is bad and you're exploited or is it important what the workers say themselves i think there's a lot of discussions going on around the sex work issue particularly of like is it from us from the outside saying you're being exploited regardless of what you think or do we need to speak to the workers and see what they think so there's a big question but um what, what do you think about that question like i, I guess uh, like in devil's from a devil's advocate point of view i would say like what about the worker who goes no i, I quite enjoy doing this work um it is interesting to note that uh, slaughterhouse workers are often from the lower echelons of society. So people we do not deem fit to pay a living wage. And that really says something. And I think that most of the people who are working in that, and we've, we've you know, spoken to these people and I've, I've spoken to people who've worked in slaughterhouses, um, you know, especially in a lot of countries where it's, it's, it's the, the, what's seen as the lowest of the low, they can be paid absolute pittance and the actual work itself is not something that a lot of people of privilege want to do. So if given an opportunity, um, I would say that the people who work in these conditions would want better conditions. And a lot of them would probably have a problem with doing the slaughter as well. And the reason why it's so low paid, um, a lot of a lot of the average day people, like average everyday people like you and my, myself, even if we weren't vegan, we would not want to do this absolute bloody work. It is bloody and it is violent and it is confronting. And it changes people as, as people. It changes them. It desensitizes them. And it also causes trauma. And, you know, speaking to, to um, ex-slaughterhouse workers, um, some of them get PTSD. Um, you, you can't work in such an environment and not have it affect you. Mm. So if we listen to these people, we're probably going to find that the stories of exploitation are absolutely rampant. I think this is different in, in um, you know, say, with sex work. We're coming from a moralistic point of view. Uh, we, we're coming in from a, we're going to save you from yourselves. Um, but from this point of view, from a slaughterhouse worker's point of view, we are trying to save them from a horrible exploitative system that they have no choice but to work in because this is the only job that they can get. Um, yeah. You know, this is the only thing that they are offered in a, in a society that sees them as the dregs of society, basically. Yeah, no, I definitely agree a lot with all of that. And I've actually interviewed an Australian slaughterhouse worker and it was very much the same. He was haunted by it. Yeah. There was lots of violence that spread out into the community as well as in the yes. slaughterhouse itself. Uh, drug use, um, all kinds of issues to cope with it. It definitely wasn't something he wanted to do and he, he was very much haunted by it. And I would also say as well, just to build on your points, like separating it from things like sex work, for example, like even if we did find that hypothetical worker who isn't affected by it and, and enjoys it and would love to do it, there's also the animals in the equation. Yes. So I think that that's yeah. another important issue to bring in that, Definitely. yeah, again, I think that isn't the case for, you know, an overwhelming number. I think a lot of them would really hate the work because it is really horrible work as we've mm -hmm. touched on. Um, but also there's also the additional injustice, which isn't uh, comparable to other industries because there is the animal uh, being harmed and killed. In there, there as well, is a sentient is... creature that's exactly. also involved that's living its life. Yeah, so we definitely have to abolish it from from those grounds as well. Mm. Um, we are about out of time. Just quickly before we take off, you've got some uh, vegan Christmas roast uh, information for us. Okay, so just really quickly, um, often at Christmas we have the opportunity to have conversations and also unfortunately at the centrepiece of most Christmases uh, and most you know festive seasons here in Australia is a big, huge piece of animal at the table. 
So it's really good to know. And in just a day's work, I've actually discovered there are at least 11 brands of vegan roast available here in Melbourne. Um, so things like AVS Organics, that's what, that one's gluten-free, Veggie Delights, Coles and Woolies have vegan roasts, uh, Field Roast, Tofurky, Guardian, Unreal Co, Susie Spoon, Lanyong, and a whole bunch of Vincent Vegetarian. So if you want to have as a centerpiece of um, your family dinner, a roast, you have so many options now. And it's a really great way to introduce someone a really positive way to introduce them to, um, you know, vegan food at Christmas. Even if you don't want to make it yourself, just go and buy a vegan roast. There's so many. I'm compiling a list. Um, maybe I'll actually give it to you and you can put it up as a link. <laughs> yep, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, really importantly, get your roast as quick as you can. Often they go out of stock really quickly and you'll be disappointed. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think there's certain places you can order them in advance and stuff like that. As That's well. right. Some need to be yep. pre-ordered. Yeah. 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 At some sort of specialty places. So, yeah, look out for that. I think it is a positive thing of like rather than, oh, this is what we don't want you to hear something you this can eat and try something eat. new. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, we are out of time. Um, tune in uh, every 1 till 2 to our show via 855am or 3cr.org.au. You can find all our old episodes, including a bunch with Megan at 3cr.org.au forward slash freedom of species, iTunes, Spotify, a bunch of podcast apps. Um, you can email, email email us with feedback, info at freedomofspecies.org. Connect with us on social media. Uh, but, yeah, always great to speak to you. Thanks again for coming on the show, Megan. Always. Always a pleasure, Nick. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.